So Psalm 51, which is page 562, I'm in the Bibles and the pews. Uh, and the sermon's called Magnificent Mercy, Encountering the Glory of God Through Our Worst Failures. Um, and is it, as is the case with uh, most of the psalms, if not all of them, uh, Psalm 51 is a deeply emotional psalm. And for this reason, I've actually, to be honest, been a little nervous about uh, preaching this sermon because of, of the weight of the text and the situation surrounding when the text was written. Um, and because a lot of the divinely inspired meeting, meaning behind the text really is tied in with, with the emotion behind it, um, I want to kind of start this, this sermon actually with a story. Um, so that we aren't tempted to kind of disengage from the emotion of the text and, and miss out on a lot of, of the meaning of it. And so it was spring in ancient Jerusalem, which is the time of the year where kings and kingdoms often engaged in warfare. Israel was in battle with the Ammonites, but their king stayed behind at the palace in Jerusalem. One evening, the king is walking around the roof of the palace, and he sees a woman bathing from a distance. Seeing her beauty, the king sent a servant to find out who she was. He found out that her name was Bathsheba, the wife of a man named Uriah, who was away fighting in the king's army. The king had the woman brought to the palace where he slept with her, and she became pregnant. When the king learned of Bathsheba's pregnancy, he recalled her husband Uriah from battle. He had plotted to send Uriah home so that he would sleep with his wife, thus concealing that she had actually conceived the child from the king. But feeling guilty that his fellow soldiers were away at battle, living in tents and braving the elements, Uriah refused to go home and slept at, on the steps of the palace. And so the king ordered that Uriah be sent to battle, and when he was, that he be put on the front lines of battle where he would most certainly die. And he was killed in battle. When Bathsheba learned that her husband had died in battle, she mourned greatly. But the king then took her as his own wife. The Lord was greatly displeased with the king, so he sent a prophet named Nathan to the king, and he told this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for this traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Upon hearing this story, the king became angry, and he said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. The prophet responded to the king, You are the man. The story goes on, but I'm going to stop there for our purposes of, of Psalm 51. Many of you probably know this story. It's recorded in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. The king in the story is King David, who is the author of the psalm we're reading this morning. And what is written in Psalm 51, the title of the psalm tells us, 
is the outpouring of David's heart after he heard those words of condemnation ringing out of the prophet's Nathan's the prophet Nathan's mouth that those were ringing in his ears you are the man and so this psalm is his response to this situation psalm 51 have mercy on me o god according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Do you feel the, the weight of the words of this psalm? I'm sure many of us in this room have at some point in our lives felt the great sorrow and guilt that is bleeding out of David's heart here. And likewise, there's much that we can all learn from this passage about our relation to God during these times of great despair and grief and shame. See in the first two verses how desperate David is. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Immediately, even before mentioning anything about his sin, he's immediately calling out to God, Have mercy on me. He recognizes the character of God in a few ways as well in the first couple verses. Implicitly, though he doesn't say it, we can tell that he recognizes God's character of justice. Otherwise, he wouldn't be begging for mercy in the first place if he didn't know he was guilty before a just God. And he knows also that God has seen his sin. He hasn't had to say, hey, God, this is my sin. God already, he knows that God has seen the sin he has committed. At the same time, David also explicitly affirms certain attributes of God's character. And actually, he uses them to appeal to God for mercy. He says, according to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion. 
And that's the basis for him asking for mercy and for his transgressions to be blotted out. And it's out of this knowledge of God's character that he makes his plea. According to your unfailing love, because you are persistently loving, have mercy on me. According to your great compassion, or because you are a compassionate God, blot out my transgressions. David knows his God. Do you? As, as hard as it can be, and I know this too, as hard as it can be when in times where the emotion of guilt is ruling in our hearts to remember the character of God, that is a crucial a crucial thing to remember and to know is who is God. And to know and remember that God is loving and compassionate in these times of guilt is not to, not to minimize sin or guilt in the least. It's not to say, oh, well, he's compassionate, so it doesn't matter. Far from it. In fact, we see this in what David writes in the following verses. In verse 3, it says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Clearly David is aware of his sin, as we can imply from his plea for mercy in the first two verses. But even so, it's significant that he explicitly confesses his sin before God and acknowledges that he has offended God by committing adultery, deceit, and murder. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. At first, this verse can catch us off guard. You can say, wait a minute, didn't he clearly sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Yes, of, of course he did. But first and foremost, he sinned against God. For it is because God commands us to not commit adultery and murder that it is sin in the first place. Marriage is a covenant, a wonderful gift that is created by God. And David destroyed one. And human life is a gift and creation of God, and David took one away. And so really his offense is against what God has created and blessed and made. So at the root of his sin is a disrespect and contempt for what God has, has created and blessed. He continues, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here David recognizes that God's judgment of guilty is the righteous decision, the righteous verdict, and that the, as the judge of all creation, God is justified in his position to make that judgment. This David really couldn't avoid that he's guilty. Uh, he even pronounced his own guilt when he responded to the prophet Nathan's story. He said, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He's really backed into a corner here in a way. But David's confession does not just address his, the sin that he did, but it addresses his very being. It says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This verse is not saying that at conception and reproduction are our sin, but rather David is affirming what we now call the, the doctrine of original sin. He's in effect saying, from the very moment I existed as a human being, in my mother's womb, I was a sinful being. My sin is not just something I did, removed from my identity. It is an outpouring of who I am. I am a sinful being. 
In verse 6, David expresses more about kind of the inward self and the inward being. He says, Surely you, God, desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. God desires not just that our actions are holy and righteous. He desires our very inner being, who we are deep down to our bones, to be holy. And yet, in these times of guilt and sin, we know deep down that we are far from holy and righteous. When we're pouring out our heart like David is in this psalm, we know that deep in our innermost parts, we are not honoring God. I know it's true of me. If I just look at who I am inside, apart from anything else, I don't have anything impressive to show. And David saw this too. In the first two verses, we learn the importance of knowing, even in times of intense guilt, that our God is tremendously loving and compassionate. And actually, by affirming what David just did here, our nature of sin and our inherent wickedness, we see how loving and compassionate God really is. You see, when we, when we try to minimize the depth of our sin, and when we minimize the severity of our sin, we minimize the lovingness and compassion of our God, which led him to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. Small offenses require little love and compassion to forgive. If someone took a penny from me, I'm not, it's not going to take a lot for me to be like, you know, it's okay, I, I forgive you and, and move on. But when we recognize the greatness of our offenses to God, we better grasp the glory of his love and compassion, which are manifested in Christ on the cross. That is how his love is shown to us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. David continues in verse 7. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Out of recognition and confession of sin, David again recognizes his need for God to undo the effects of his sin. He asks to be cleansed and washed so he will be clean from the stain of sin that has taken a hold of him. Interestingly, as well, he asks to be cleansed with hyssop. Now, hyssop was a plant, is a plant that was used in Jewish rituals of purification. So if something in the Jewish law was deemed impure, hyssop was used generally to sprinkle blood on the impure thing so that it would be deemed pure. Um, as an example, in Leviticus 14 describes a ritual where a house is deemed unclean because of a certain type of mold it had. Um, and so a, a priest would come, and among other things, they would dip the hyssop in blood and sprinkle the house, and it would be deemed clean or pure again. Another use of, of hyssop is the Passover is the Jewish holiday, uh, which celebrates God's deliverance of the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, and the final plague that the Lord, he sent an, an angel of death um, in Egypt, which would come in the night and take the firstborn child of each household. But God told his people that there was a way to avoid the coming judgment. If you sprinkle the blood of the lamb around the doorway with hyssop, the branch of hyssop, if you spread the blood of the lamb with hyssop, then that will be the sacrifice for the angel of death, and it will pass over your house. Even further, it was on a branch of hyssop that Jesus, the Son of God, when he was upon the cross, was offered a taste of sour wine from a sponge, 
to quench his dire thirst so that he could muster up the final strength to utter his last words, it is finished, to proclaim his work being finished of, of paying for our sins on the cross. So David prayed, O God, cleanse me with hyssop so I can be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Saying in effect, O Lord, purify me. Sprinkle me with the blood of the Lamb. Today we can say, cover me in the blood of Jesus Christ. Then and only then will I be clean. As the song goes, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we are in the depths of despair, anguishing over the guilt of of sin that we feel, it's important that we reflect and recognize the severity of our wickedness. But we should do so only to the end that it leads us to the cross and the blood of Christ, not just to dwell in in self-pity forever. Psalm continues, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. In the midst of the sorrow David is experiencing, he cries out to experience the joy of communion with God, the gladness of knowing God in in a personal way as he did before. His sin has caused a a great divide and a tension in his relationship with God. He is someone who has been caught in this great sin, yet he desperately wants communion with a holy and perfect God. God has, has crushed him in a way so as to, to build him back up and to restore him. These are the bones that you have crushed, but he wants them to rejoice. And so David desires this communion with God more than anything. Let these bones that you have crushed rejoice. In verse 9, David once again asks that God blot out his sin. He says, hide your face from my sins. Don't even look at them and blot out my iniquity. Verse 10 reads, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Earlier we talked about how David has searched his inner being and found nothing but but sin and wickedness down to the core of who he is. And so he says, God, give me a new core. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. He also says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Here again, David is begging God for that relationship, that joyful communion with God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, this this restart, this pure heart that he is asking for and renewed spirit is deeply intertwined with the joy of salvation and deliverance. If you are seeking joy and deliverance from sin apart from a total surrender and restart from God, we will not get what we're looking for. The only way to experience the joy of communion with God is to become a new creation, to surrender our lives completely to Christ so that he can take us from sinner, sinner down to our bones, to sons and daughters of the living God. A new identity is the only way. And only when we belong to Christ will we be given the Holy Spirit, which gives us this willing spirit to sustain us and to do the good works which God has created and recreated us for. Verse 13 reads, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. 
This verse is, is a critical point in this psalm. It says, then I will. For the first time, not until the 13th verse of this psalm, is David the subject of any type of verb that's not relating to sin. Earlier in the passage, he, he mentioned, I know my transgressions. I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. But this is the first time he's doing anything other than sinning, really, in, in this text. To this point, he's been asking God to do everything. God, have mercy. God, blot out my transgressions. God, wash me. God, cleanse me. God, let me hear. God, hide your face. God, create in me a pure heart. God, restore me. God, grant me a willing spirit. Then I will teach. There is a reason this psalm is not written in reverse. There's a reason that the psalm begins with mercy, love, and compassion of God rather than obedient action of David. So I just want, this psalm is about confession. I just briefly want to mention what confession is not. Confession is not simply doing better. It's not putting the past behind you, searching within yourself, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, God, I'm going to do better. No. Rather, confession looks more like this psalm. True confession searches within yourself and says, I've got nothing. God, would you cleanse me? Would you wash me thoroughly? Because the stain is deep and it's, it, the stain is deep and it's ingrained in the very fiber of my being. A stained rag can't scrub itself clean. The 18th century preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. Only our loving and compassionate and merciful God can restore sinners. Only the grace of God, manifest in the blood of Christ, can be poured over a sinner and wash him whiter than snow. Transform him down to the bones and turn an adulterer, deceiver, and murderer into a holy and blameless son of God. Only because of what God does to restore David, will he teach transgressors so that they will turn back to God. And as we see by just reading this psalm this morning, these words of David are still teaching us today. A big factor in why you're reading this scripture this morning, why I chose to, to use this text for this sermon, is because of how God used this psalm to restore me. A few years ago, I was in David's position, though not exactly the same. There were similarities in our, in our positions. I'd been apathetic about addressing a strain of sin in my life, and one night it all exploded on me. I'd done something I never thought I would ever do, something I always harshly judged others for doing, in fact. Now is is not the time or place to go into the specifics of this sin, but I will say that that night, walking back to my my dorm room on Penn State's campus down Pollock Road, that night was the only time in my life that the thought crossed my mind, I want to die. By the grace of God, though, that thought was for a brief moment. I got back to my dorm room alive, 
but bawling on the floor. I remember the next day confessing and talking with a trusted friend of mine. I just kept saying over and over again, I'm a monster. I'm a monster. I feel like a monster. It was shortly after this that God had me read this psalm for the first time. What strikes me about this psalm still, to this day, is not only the precision with which the psalm expressed the guilt felt from sin, but the confidence that David had that his God will do all that he had asked him. David was a witness to the faithfulness and mercy of God. And I testify as one too, as many of you can also testify. Because of my sin, I have seen just how big the grace of God is and just how powerful the cross is. And it just keeps growing more and more impressive in my sight. As I was preparing for this sermon, uh, there was a commentary that I was using uh, by Donald Williams, and he wrote this in the commentary. When we witness from our wounds, the wounded can identify with us. Also, when we witness from our wounds, the glory goes to God and not to us. David continues, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. O God, you who are God my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. As we see God's hand in delivering us from sin and giving us new life, we ought to be bursting at the seams with worship and thanks to him. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Here David is saying, all I can give is my very self. My heart is broken. Please give me a new one, God. And this, coming before God with a broken heart, David affirms, God will not despise. Verses 18 and 19, the end of our passage, um, are a little interesting, uh, mostly because they involve the nation of Israel corporately. And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know that I completely understand um, kind of the purpose behind this section, but, but from reading about this part, um, I, I do know something we can get out of it. The verses read, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David, as king of Israel, understands how his sin could affect the kingdom. How the leadership went in the ancient times and still today often is how the way of the people goes. Here David is asking that as God has renewed him, that he would also renew his kingdom. It is similar in a way to how a pastor today, if he were caught in in a great sin, 
uh, he, w- he would pray for his congregation. Lord, I know this affects the people. I pray that you renew them and watch over them as you have done for me. Although David was forgiven of his sins and they were not counted against him in, in the eternal judgment, there, there were consequences on earth for his actions. And they affected the kingdom of Israel. David asked that God would extend his gracious and redeeming work among his people as well, as he has done for David. So as emotionally and, and theologically deep as this psalm is, it's, it's also highly practical. It's a model uh, for confession of sin and seeking reconciliation with God. It's also very personal, extremely personal, written from a sinner to God. And it's written in such a way that you and I could actually read it to God as confession. If I had to leave you with uh, one point from this passage, kind of in the way of application, it would be, um, it would just be this. That regular heartfelt confession is a critical practice for knowing God better and worshiping him more fully. Regular heartfelt confession is a critical practice for knowing God better and worshiping him more fully. And so that's not a super specific application, um, but this is where I, I think it comes to you and um, praying to God about this. Is what does growing in confession look like for you? And just as a couple examples, perhaps you tend to be apathetic towards sin, and you need to meditate, study, and pray to God that your grief over sin would grow to be more like the Lord's attitude towards sin. That sin would grieve your heart. This is definitely the camp I find myself often in. That I I just brush sin aside and act like it's no big deal. But maybe you're on the other side of the fence. Perhaps you often feel extreme and, and great grief and guilt for your sin. But that doesn't always lead you to the cross. To be cleansed with the blood and to experience love, compassion, and mercy of God. Maybe you tend to feel great guilt and, and you stay in that guilt and don't, don't seek the cross um, that you can see God's glory of redemption. Maybe if you're in, in that camp, you need to meditate and study and pray that, that you would come to know and remember the attributes of God, such as his unfailing love and great compassion. Finally, maybe you've never approached God in confession before. Maybe you haven't trusted Christ before, and you need a first confession. Maybe you need to pray something like, Lord, I know my transgressions. Cleanse me and purify me with the blood of Christ, your only Son, and create in me a pure heart. This broken and contrite heart I give to you. However the Spirit is leading you to grow in the worship of confession, I encourage you to take time sometime soon to talk about it with someone in the church. While this psalm showed wonderfully the power of private confession to God, the Lord has also blessed us with each other. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are sitting right next to you now to encourage one another, to build each other up, and to pray for one another.
in James, it tells us to con- confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Our God has persistent love, tremendous compassion, and magnificent mercy. He is able to blot out our worst transgressions, cleanse our deepest stains, deliver us from guilt. A broken heart he will not despise. So in the midst of our sins, even the worst of them, let this psalm be our song to the Lord. And because of the magnificent mercy that he shows us through the blood of Christ, let us teach others his ways, that more will turn back to him. And so as we recognize more and more of our sin, we see more and more of grace. And the more and more we see his grace, the more and more we see who he is. And the more and more we see who he is, the more and more we see his glory. And the more and more we see his glory, the more and more we worship him. So in a moment, we're going to together worship God right now. And I pray that we would continue to worship him with our whole lives throughout the week.